Well, as we have been in our series in Exodus, we are continuing on this morning. So if you would, turn to Exodus chapter 5. In chapter 3 of J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, Packer asks a series of questions. What does it mean to know God? Is it a special emotion, shivers down the back during worship, a special experience we we once had? And then Packer goes on to ask four questions. What were we made for? What aim should we set for ourselves in life? What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy and delight and contentment than anything else? These are questions that Packer wisely asks about what it means to know God. The book of Exodus is all about God making himself known. But sadly, Moses and Aaron and Israel are not quite yet capable of answering the questions that Packer is asking. We will see in these verses that the answer will come soon enough. Exodus is this intriguing and fascinating story that we've been in now for a month. We see an oppressive king. We see babies being put to death. We see a baby miraculously rescued, a a Hebrew becoming an Egyptian prince and then murdering someone, and then an Egyptian king wanting to kill the Hebrew prince in exile, and a burning bush that talks, and a staff that turns into a serpent, and a reluctant savior, a patient God, and on and on. And what we see in the book of Exodus is that God, God cares about his people and that the time for their deliverance has come. And so the excitement and the tension builds as God's chosen savior Moses and his brother Aaron finally make their way to Egypt, which Devin spoke about last week at the end of chapter 4. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. Then he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all, all of the words, the Lord, which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel Aaron spoke all of the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. We see the beginning of this wonderful, intriguing, fascinating, and sometimes very perplexing story of deliverance. Moses and Aaron go to Israel. Tell them about all that God has said. Demonstrate all the miracles that God has said. They throw the staff onto the ground and the staff turns to a serpent. And imagine the Israelites just looking at that that serpent, then Moses grabbing it up by the tail and it turning back into his staff and putting his hand inside his coat and it becomes out leprous and putting it back in and it comes out completely healed. Think of the signs that these are seeing. But what happens next 
What happens to Moses, particularly next, is totally unexpected. It is demoralizing, it is frustrating, it is discouraging, and it is frightening. Exodus 5, 7 through 7 tells us a story. It tells us a story of depressing defeat. It tells a story of seemingly all hope being lost. It tells a story of God intervening. It tells a story of Moses having his eyes opened up to who God is, to watching God make himself known. That's what we're going to see in this story. And three three experiences that Moses walks through in this story is he, he, sees, he sees things again through, through human eyes, but he begins to begin to see things through God's eyes. And he sees the despair of slavery. He sees the promise of salvation. And he sees the assurance of God's sovereignty. Let's look in chapter 5 and beginning in verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, well, okay, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you must make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them, and you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Or another word would be, they are lazy. Therefore, they cried, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom the Pharaoh, who Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your tasks, making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? And then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried, to Pharaoh. Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. 
The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to your people? Why, Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses and the people of Israel discover even more the despair of slavery. Nothing has gone as, as Moses expected in verse 1. He goes to Pharaoh and, and he's emboldened because he just had gone to, to Israel. He had said the words that God had said to say and Israel responded. He had done the miracles. He had thrown down the staff. He had made his hand leprous. He had done the things and Israel not only responded by believing, they worshiped God. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and he is emboldened and he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. The problem begins though with Moses coming up with his own version of what God said rather than repeating what God had told him to say. He kind of skews the word of God. The word of God, as you see in 3.18, the Lord has told Moses, and they will listen to your voice, and the elders of Israel shall go with you to the king. So the first thing that Moses does, he goes with just Aaron. He doesn't take the elders with him. And then the Lord tells him what you should say. Say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go to a three days journey into the wilderness. And what does Moses do? Hey, can we go out and have a feast? We want to have a party. It appears that Moses and Aaron have tried to do things on their own. And then Moses remembers or repents or does whatever he needs to do. But then he says, hey, listen, the Lord has said, let my people go. The Lord of the Hebrews. And so then he repeats exactly what the Lord has said. And Pharaoh's response is chilling. Who is the Lord? Who is this God that you are telling us about? Who is this God you're talking about? Listen, I am the only God here. And if you understand the history of of Egypt and pharaohs, they viewed themselves as divine. They viewed themselves as the God of the people, the God in charge. And so when Moses says, the God of the Hebrews has said, let my people go, Pharaoh's thought is, who is God? I am God, and these are my people. I'm the only divine here. I am the only one who is all-powerful. I don't know this God of yours. Chilling words. I do not know the Lord, Pharaoh says. And so, I will not obey his voice 
and I will not let these people go. Now imagine just how stunned Moses would be at that moment. It worked when he spoke to Israel. It worked when he showed them signs. And notice, Moses doesn't do any signs and wonders before Pharaoh either. So he doesn't use the right words. He doesn't do the signs and wonders. He doesn't take the elders with him. It's Moses kind of falling back into his old pattern of trying to deliver Israel on his own, as he did when he murdered the Egyptian overseer in trying to protect an Israelite early on in his life. Moses just assumed his voice would carry the day, and it did not. So rather than being delivered from the hand of Pharaoh, Israel's enslavement only gets worse. Pharaoh becomes more harsh. And he becomes more cruel. He mocks God and he makes this new decree, this new burden. Okay, listen, no longer, no longer are these people, no longer are you going to be allowed to be given straw. You're going to go get straw on your own. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to go throughout all of Egypt because Harvest has already come. And so when, when Moses writes here, when the writer says that they went and they gathered stubble, it means that all of the straw has already been harvested. And the only thing they can get to make bricks is what's left over at the bottom of the stalk, which is that much more intensive labor in pulling that up to make bricks, which takes that much more time, which holds them that much further back from being able to do what they are told to do, which is make the quota of bricks for that day. Slavery is harsh and cruel and wicked. And it is filled with despair. Pharaoh's cruelty has no limits because he is God. He is the one in control. He is the one. He's the one who commands, and he commands the taskmasters, don't give them straw anymore, no matter how much they cry. And they will not go and sacrifice to their God. Moses and Aaron go from a high, high of what happened with Israel to the lowest of lows as they encounter this cruel and wicked and harsh taskmaster named Pharaoh. What God shows Moses and Israel is that there is only despair and heartache in slavery. God has told Moses that the people of Israel are called to serve him and not a slave master. And what, what we see, you know, like Pharaoh, sin is a harsh taskmaster. It always demands more and more from us while giving us less and less in return. The more a lustful person indulges in their fantasies, the more they crave. The more we demand things to make us happy, money, material things, the less true joy and experience and contentment we have. And Satan and sin never loosens its grip, just like Pharaoh here. Never loosens its grip. It's always being tightened, always gripping harder in the chains of captivity. It's always make more bricks with less straw. It's the nature of sin to seek to control the sinner's whole life. 
And Jesus warns us in John 8, 34, he says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And these people in this story, as Moses is following God's purpose and plan, he's wanting to see these people delivered, all they see is the intensity and the captivity of slavery getting more harsh, more intense. The despair of Israel's slavery is that there is, to them, there is no way out. There's, there's no way out. And so what do they do? Do you remember what happens in, in chapter 2 at the, at the end? They, they've been in slavery for 400 years. And it says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew they cried to God they knew where to turn and now in the midst of their captivity and their slavery where do they go verse 15 then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh The despair of Israel's slavery is they saw no way out. They wrongly looked to Pharaoh for relief. And yet, God, God in his patience, and God in his mercy, even a flawed man sends them a savior. Just like we needed a savior in Christ. Here's what this section this, of this story tells us. Is that slavery, the slavery of, of what we read here, but, but the slavery of sin. We don't understand how wicked and cruel and captivating and enslaving sin is. We will never appreciate how amazing grace is. Listen, these folks, these folks were, were, they, they were at times comfortable in their slavery. You think through, and as we go through Exodus, you will see again and again that when the going gets difficult, what do the Israelites do? They complain and they say to Moses, why did you take us out of Egypt? Send us back to Egypt where we were warm and secure. Send us back to Egypt where we at least had food. Send us back to Egypt. They missed the depth and nature of sin. And here in in Exodus, we are learning the same. The gospel is not amazing if we do not see how wicked and evil our sin is and how destructive it is to our lives. Exodus gives us a clear view of the despair and hopelessness of being ruled by something other than God or someone other than God. And there are lots of ways we can be enslaved. If anger rules your heart, you're a slave. If fear rules your heart, you're a slave. 
if lust rules your heart, you're a slave. If the love of money and material things rule your heart, you're a slave. And you're in captivity. And your ruler will demand more and more and more and never be satisfied. And the people of Israel needed to experience this. God, this just didn't happen. God has a plan and a purpose for this. Moses, in verse 22, he cries to the Lord and says, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. You know, if you're Moses and Aaron, the story's over. Israel's story is over. And so what does Moses do in his despair? He returns to his burning bush conversation with, with the Lord. Questions, and he questions God's wisdom as he did at the burning bush. Now, I don't know where Moses went when he wanted to talk to the Lord. Did he go back to the burning bush? Or did he just find any bush in, in Egypt and decide he was going to have a conversation with another bush just so he could have contact with God? We don't know where Moses went, but we do know that he does speak to God and God speaks back to him. But what Moses does is he accuses God of being evil. And he accuses God of being evil in the same way he accuses Pharaoh of being evil. In many respects, Moses is just simply having an adult temper tantrum. You didn't give me what I expected. Why should I trust you now? And how, how our responses in trials at times can be the same. I prayed. I was in trouble I pleaded, your word promised, where have you been? Why didn't you show up? And like Moses, we begin to doubt God. We doubt his character, you're evil. We doubt his wisdom, why did you send me? We doubt his promises, you have not delivered your people at all. Listen. We move into chapter 6 and the promise of salvation. Not only have we seen the despair of slavery, but now we see the promise of salvation. There's so much more to the story. And in verse 1, we see grace personified. God speaks to Moses. Moses has complained. He has he accused God of evil. He has put God in the same place as Pharaoh, as wicked. He has told God that you do not keep your promises. And then in verse 1 of chapter 6, God personifies grace. But the Lord said to Moses, Notice God's patience here. He doesn't chastise Moses. He's not angry with Moses. He just doesn't, he doesn't just flat out kill him for being a whiny fool, which is exactly what Moses has been. What, does, what he does do is he tells Moses a gospel story. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. 
I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel from whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, remind the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgments. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. The promise of salvation. In the midst of Israel's greatest despair and their hopelessness and their fear and their anxiety, God speaks and makes himself known. And he reminds them of what we would understand as the gospel. I am the Lord and here is what I will do. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you as a possession. I will, says the Lord. What a story of grace. What a story of hope. What a story of promise. What a story of the gospel. What a story. I will. I will. Moses. <laughs> so Moses gives it another try. But he doesn't go to Pharaoh. He goes to Israel. In verse 9, Moses thus spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am a man of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron again and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. God just doesn't quit with people. He clings to us when we have no desire to cling to him. God never lets us go. The patience that God extends to Moses in this situation is just unfathomable. It's, it's inexplicable. How, how do you understand after complaint, after complaint, after complaint? Well, I understand it because I have done that with the Lord myself. 
and it's it, it's it's not nothing, it's not anything as nearly as bad as this. I get a migraine. Oh God, again, again. I thought you healed. I do my taxes and I see I'm paying a lot of money. Really, God? Really? Really? Malachi, tithing, abundance. What's up? God says, what's up is the money's mine, not yours, pal. Yeah, I understand. And God is patient with me, and God is patient with you. And in the midst of our temptations and sinful responses, God is quick to forgive us when we repent. God is quick to draw us to himself. God is quick to remind us, I will. I will. In fact, he, he, he does that. He does that later on in John. Think about the number of times in John's gospel where we hear Jesus speaking. He says, whoever drinks of the water, I will give him, will never thirst again. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I will come again and take you to myself. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I will not leave you as orphans. The I-wills of God have never changed. Past, present, and future. God is so patient with us. Philip Ryken in his commentary says this. He says, now Jesus stands at the right hand of his Father in heaven, ready to help us when trouble comes. When we commit a sin, Jesus intercedes for us, reminding his Father that all our sins have been washed away through the blood of his covenant. When things go from bad to worse, when in our suffering we are tempted and discouraged, Jesus sends us comfort and peace of the Spirit and promised blessings of the covenant. God never goes back on a promise. He always keeps his word. As the psalmist wrote, he remembers his covenant forever. Therefore, he will remember his covenant to the end of the world when Jesus comes to take his people to glory. God will remember his covenant on the day of judgment when he will forgive all our sins by his covenant mercy. And he will remember it forever after as he blesses us with everlasting love. Oh yeah, they they understood the despair of slavery, but they were being introduced to the promises of salvation. The same salvation that we enjoy today. God will deliver them. But he doesn't stop there. God then goes on. We see, there's, and he goes on for us. He assures us with his sovereignty. Verse 14 of chapter, of chapter 6. There is this unusual break in the storyline of what's going on. Slavery and Pharaoh and, and, and gathering straw and being beaten and going back to Pharaoh and signs and wonders and all these great parts of the story. And then all of a sudden we have this Boring genealogy. (laughs) 
These are the heads of the fathers of the houses. And it goes on, the sons, and I'm going to read it. Because it's in the Bible. And it happens to be the inspired word of God. Now, you may not get great inspiration from genealogies. But God breathed out these genealogies. And so if he breathed them out, it's best that we listen to them. These are the heads of the father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jamul, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shoal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. I can't even pronounce that. The years of life of Levi being 137. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mahali, and Mushi. These are the clans of... I'm sure glad my dad didn't name me Mushi. These... (laughs) Mushi Malamut. I'm not sure... (laughs) These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Israel, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elazaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Abinadab. <laughs> Minadab, and the sister of Nashon. I practiced this. <laughs> and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithmar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abasaph. And these are the clans of the Korites. Eliezer, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. Why does this genealogy suddenly drop in here? Why does it matter? Two takeaways from the genealogy. So I want to move on quickly. The assurance, first of all, of God's sovereignty in history. The assurance of God's sovereignty. Here is this. It's not a complete, it's not a complete genealogy. It's, it's more of a, a, a shortened, paraphrased genealogy. It's not all, but it brings us to the realization that God has been at work in the promise of deliverance, the I wills from the very beginning. That God in his sovereign plan has never forgotten Israel and has always planned to deliver them. And we see his sovereign purposes. And it's why three times these are the Aaron and Moses. This Moses and this Aaron. God is saying, I, whatever, whatever 
Whatever captivity or trial or suffering, whatever it is, God has been there from the beginning. And God is there in the present. And God will be there in the future. And the deliverance that He has promised, He will bring to pass. And He's telling Israel, eventually, all will see my sovereign hand and my wise purpose, and my faithful love, and my patience, and my mercy. They will see the big picture. Sometimes the picture just doesn't always fit together, and we don't understand why God is doing all that He's doing, and it's all behind the scenes. Think of, think of Job. We get to see the story of Job. We know what's behind the story of Job. Job never knows what's behind the story. We do. The story goes on. Verse 28. On the day when the Lord again spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. That is one refrain in this entire passage that has never stopped. And that is one refrain that never stops in your life. God faithfully, lovingly, through his word, through his church, says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. (laughs) But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of an uncircumcised list. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And at that point, I would have said, you're right, Moses. You are done. I'm throwing you in the burning bush. (laughs) And then we, we begin to see the riches and the extent, the infinity of God's grace Because in chapter 7, verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Here we see the sovereignty of God again. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then... I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. There is the promised salvation and there is the sovereignty of God again. Moses, I am in control. Look at what I will do. You will see. You, you think you saw signs and wonders with the, with the staff in your hand. It is just beginning, my friend. It is just beginning. And so verse 6, a miracle occurs. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. 
Now, I'm, I'm not quite sure why verse 7 is in there, though. The older I get, now it's 63. Now, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Maybe age has something to do with it. <laughs> I don't know. Now, why does all of this take place? Why didn't God just pound Pharaoh into the dust? Because he could have. And he sets us up for something that's about to happen in the coming, in the coming weeks as we get through more of Exodus. We're going to see these signs and wonders above and beyond what Moses experienced. So why didn't God just pound him in the dust for his evil heart? And why does he put up with Moses' disobedience again and again? What is, what is God after in all of this? Well, I think it's vital for us to remember the main purpose of this story of the book of Exodus. It is the story of how God makes himself known through deliverance. Let me say that again. It is the story of how God makes himself known through deliverance. Listen, in, five, in, in chapter 5, verse 2, Moses says, I do not know the Lord. In chapter, chapter 6, verse 7, the Lord says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord. And in, in 7.5, God tells Moses, he says this, he says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You want to know what this is about? It's about God making himself known that we would know him. And so we go back to the questions that Packer asked us at the very beginning. Pharaoh, he says, what were we made for? And Packer answers this in his book. He says, to know God. What aim should we set for ourselves in life? And Packer answers, to know God. And Packer asks the question, what is the eternal life that Jesus gives? And he says, the knowledge of God. And then he quotes John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And his last question, what is the best thing in life, bringing more joy and delight and contentment more than anything else? And his answer is the knowledge of God. Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word, that you make yourself known to us sinful, fallen creatures who have, have no right to know you, but you have chosen out of love and mercy to make yourself known to us. And my prayer today is that you would make yourself known to those in this room who do not know you, who do not know you, Father, who have never put their faith in Jesus Christ. Make yourself known to them that they may be able to celebrate having the knowledge of God and knowing that their lives are now in Christ. And Lord, I pray, I pray for those who, who are struggling and feel at times when they're suffering that they are far from God. Lord, draw them near. May they know your love and may they know you are clinging to them even in the midst of their trials and temptations. God, make yourself known that you may be glorified in all our thoughts and all our words and all our deeds. 
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.